Amen. Who doesn't want to be made new? All right. Uh, <laughs> we are in. Uh, oh, wait. So again, my name is Paul. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, I'm on staff with Hope as an organization, as a pastoral resident. Um, and as I mentioned in announcements, we have three locations here in Lower Town, St. Paul, uh, one in downtown Minneapolis and one in Columbia Heights. Um, and so Thanks for being here. Uh, we are in week 10 of the book of Romans, which we are going to be in for just a couple couple years. Uh, and so we are just getting started in this. Uh, and I wanted us to be thinking about, um, as we get started, kind of things that we look down on. I was just talking with a buddy last night, and he was like, if I told someone I was going to Taco Bell, they'd probably think less of me just because I'm eating at Taco Bell in my 40s. But... Uh, so <laughs> there's, we always are kind of, so a couple examples, uh, you guys maybe are familiar with the app TikTok. I don't like to bring up, um, when I've watched a video on TikTok, I don't like to say, Hey, I saw this TikTok because you immediately are judged by those. Oh, TikTok. I don't use that. Right. And you hear that it's a polarizing app. It gets picked on. Um, so you get ridiculed for mentioning TikTok, but the same people that will ridicule you for watching a TikTok will watch Facebook or Instagram reels. And granted, that'll be a month later that they'll catch up with what you already saw. But here's the deal. So this is, you, you say, oh, I would never do one thing and yet you do another thing. Or another one might be uh, for parents in the room. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna be a screen time family. We're not doing no iPads, not even for learning. We're gonna, and then you watch Bluey. We're not giving up Bluey though. We're not, you look, you, okay. Maybe no iPad, but we're not giving up Bluey. Uh, if you guys know Bluey, a great show. But uh, the so you guys realize though, a TV is just a bigger iPad, right? It's still a screen. Um, or maybe we've got uh, just being on your phone with a friend or uh, someone you're in a relationship with. You guys are both on your phone, but then you put the phone down first, and you're like, "Hey, what are you doing? Get off your phone! I'm not on mine." And it's like you just were. We were just on them together. Uh, so we get a little bit of that where we judge someone for doing the same thing we do. And then I think a classic one is texting while driving. If you've ever, like, you give someone that, whoa, what are you doing? Look. And then you're like, oh, but I got to get these directions. I got to know where I'm going. Uh, so we, do, we have these things that, uh, that we look down on, uh, even though we do the same thing. And that's what we're going to see the Apostle Paul talk about in our Romans passage today. Um, but we're going to consider together our misplaced, I'm going to use the phrase judgmentalism a lot, that looking down on others with contempt, I'm better than you because I do this, think this way, believe this thing. We're going to look at that today and see how in light of the kindness of God, there's something different that we can think about um, and how God is just different than us in this. So the message today is called The Kindness of God. We're gonna be in Romans chapter two, verses one through four. If you've got one of those scripture journals, you can uh, open that up that we had given out uh, and you can write your notes in there. There'll be, I'm sure, profound things said. So anyway, the big idea though, even when we long, so why do we, why is it so hard with other people though? Why do we lose so many arguments? Why is it so hard to change people's minds? Uh, and I want us to think about, even when we long to win those we disagree with to our side, so even we actually, I want to win you over. We often end up wading into the waters of judgmentalism, thinking about them with contempt. Uh, standing in stark contrast to our own judgmentalism comes this startling phrase, which we're going to see over and over in Romans 2 here. Verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This phrase encapsulates the gospel. God's kindness leads you to repentance. 
and God's heart for sinners by demonstrating the unique way that he brings about real life change in us is that, and is that he wins us with his kindness. So where we're going today, we're gonna look at our little four verse chunk in the, and a couple things in the Bible story. We're gonna look at it as it relates to our hearts and then we're gonna see the kindness of God for prideful judges. Um, so we're, gonna, we're always looking at the greater context here at Hope Lower Town and, and we're always wanting to see it then in our context um, and I want us to see too the uniqueness of Christianity, the unique resources that Christianity offers that allow us to be kind to other people, compassionate to other people in ways that any other way of thinking simply does not um, because we have a unique message. So let's get into it. Romans 2, one through four says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. I could say, O person. It's just, he's using this for rhetorical phrase here. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Okay, so we're just a couple comments real quick here before we dive into this. Uh, this is he's using an argumentation style of a rhetorical person who is looking at another person and judging them while doing the same things. Who's looking at someone who scrolls TikTok and judging them while watching Facebook Reels, right? He's looking down. He's calling out that person and saying that that actually is a presuming on uh, the riches of God's kindness. So who is this, oh man? Who's this reader that's meant to hear this argument? Uh, the commentaries kind of were all over. They said it could be just an upright Gentile person. So someone uh, who is not of the Jewish uh, descent, who is just looking at others and saying, I practice ethics and I don't do that. Uh, what they do, what was just described in Romans 1, which we'll look at. It could be uh, any moralistic Jew or Gentile. So just someone that says life is all about being a good person uh, and that's what makes you better and worse than others. Or it could be just the Jewish reader um, and, and Jewish Christians and Jewish readers. And, and that's where the commentaries kind of land is that Paul's writing to Jewish people in this section. And we'll see a little bit of that from the story why we think that might be what he's doing because of the way that he's actually arguing. And one of the phrases in here, we're gonna see why that might be the reader. So let's look at it just in the immediate context, our passage in the book of Romans. So here's where we've been in the last 10 weeks. The apostle Paul uh, is a servant of Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And so he's got this gospel that he wants to bring and give away to the Romans as an apostle now of Christ. And so that's where we get this letter. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, in this message, the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he says, I'm not ashamed of this message. This gospel message of a crucified savior who dies for sins, this message of being justified or made right with God simply through faith in Christ, it has the power of God behind it to save anyone who believes. So therefore I must preach it. And yet he says, this is revealed. This righteousness is revealed. And then in the very next verse in verse 18, we see the wrath of God is also revealed. And we saw that the reason the wrath of God is revealed in, in these verses, 18 through 32, is that we 
as humanity have exchanged the glory of God, his glory for images, things on the horizontal plane or creator for creation. We worship things that he's given us instead of him, the giver. And in that, we've actually exchanged the truth about who he is for a lie. And we've exchanged natural things for unnatural. We've turned from God in such a way that verse, uh, it's described this way. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he continues, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So it's gotten so bad that they're not only doing these things that they know are wrong, they're actually saying, yeah, keep going. And we talked about last week, God's righteous decree that God has written goodness, morality, understanding onto our hearts that we know good and evil. That's written onto our hearts. And we saw it, Brian showed us that from the early beginnings of the story when Adam and Eve sin and immediately they know good and evil now. And he told us about the story of Cain, for example, and he knows that to murder his brother Abel was wrong and yet he does it. Anyway, we have this knowledge and yet we approve the wrongdoing. So the situation is bad. If you've seen Toy Story 3, it's, this is the description of humanity here. I've used this before, so bear with me. But they're, they're, they're in the incinerator. They've been, their life is, is coming to an end. They have nothing they can do to rescue themselves. They're an inability to rescue themselves. The situation is dire. It's self-imposed. And that's the story of humanity that we've seen in Romans 1 to this point. We've rejected God and the situation is dire. We're experiencing even now his present tense wrath as he gives us over to sin. But that's why Romans 2, 1 through 4 is in the Bible. Because there would have been a reader, maybe it's us today, that see that list and we say, I don't do those things. And we judge. And the Apostle Paul uses this form of argumentation because we forget. Again, he says, therefore you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So this passage is is there to remind the reader that we can't look down on others because we are in dire circumstances ourselves. We're in the same boat. And so we see this language, presume on the riches of his kindness. Another translation, we use the word despise. Do you actually despise God's grace, his kindness to others or maybe to yourself? And so we've got to ask though, why does Paul shift from that list of sins and all this bad news in Romans 1 to, hey, and you better not judge them. Why does he do that? What is this argumentation? It feels like almost a bait and switch. This is actually pretty common in the Bible to to draw people in and help them see things more clearly is to do this kind of approach. And for that, we'll go to the Bible story and I wanna go to the story of King David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And this, I just use this picture because the story, the pictures 
that are, if you search Bathsheba and David, that you get like these weird like uh, kids coloring book pictures that are just not helpful. So this is battle. And the context is from 2 Samuel 11. So Old Testament, King David is the king. He's the good guy. But he does something wrong. The king at that time was supposed to lead their troops into battle. Any battle, the king is out front. But David stays back. David hangs back. And I, we're not going to look at the text, but I'm going to tell the story. So what happens is he's not in battle. And one afternoon, he's up on his roof. And Bathsheba is bathing. She's not on a roof. She's bathing wherever she's bathing. But I think sometimes we think she's on the roof too. No, he's on a roof. He spies her. She's actually cleansing herself from her monthly uncleanness, the Bible describes. Um, and so that's why she's bathing. He sees her purifying herself. The text says she's beautiful. He sends messengers to go get her and bring her to him and he has sex with her. Now we could talk more about this offline. Where's consent in there? I'm not sure. This is the king of Israel and she's brought to him. Does she have a choice? I don't know. But she's brought to him, he has sex with her and she actually gets pregnant. And so he says, what am I gonna do? He calls Uriah, her husband, back from battle, tries to get Uriah to sleep with her so that he could say, oh, it's your child. Uriah won't do it, he's a man of honor. And he says, not while the men are in battle, I couldn't do that. That'd be a betrayal of them. And David can't see, he's already betrayed them and Uriah and Bathsheba. So what he does is he sends Uriah to die in battle. He writes a letter to Joab and sends him to be put on the front line so that he knows he'll die in battle. He murders Uriah. So he commits this great sin. This is one of the great sins of the Bible from one of the greatest figures in the Bible. And we say all that to frame up how God confronts him with his sin. And for that, we go to the prophet Nathan, the very next chapter. This is his son, actually, Nathan, who's a prophet. And it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, now he's telling him a story. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he had brought it up and grew it, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. So David, here's the story. His anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. This man deserves to die, David says. We saw that language in Romans 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to them. I think Paul knows the language he's using here. This deserve to die language, this clues us in that for the Jewish reader who would have read the Romans won list of sins and said, not me, not me, not me, not me. They deserve to die for what they've done wrong. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. The story is about you. You are the man. 
You are the man. You're the one who did it. The story indicts you. God uses story to reveal to us our sin because we can't see it. We have an allergy to seeing it. He says, the story indicts you. When you pass judgment and you say, this man deserves to die, you actually condemn yourself because this is about you. Again, Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then we see God's response here. That First, we see David fails to see his sin, his hypocrisy. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and you gave the house of Israel and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And it continues. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So we see kind of a twofold response from God. One, there's consequences. There is. There are real consequences for David's sin. And yet look at this kindness. The Lord also has put away your sin. So when we look at Romans 2, 1 through 4, it's telling the reader, those of us who would look at that list of sins and sinners and say, not me. It's reminding us we are the one. You are the one. You judge, but you do the same things. You convict yourself and actually you show in the way you look at others that you despise God's grace. You presume or despise the riches of his kindness. God uses story to reveal our hearts to us. Jesus does this too in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. He gives us contrasting look. He tells this story so that we can examine our hearts. It says, starting in verse 9 in Luke 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. That's the first prayer. This is the Pharisee. Look at the language. He told this to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What's the outcome of that self-trust, self-righteousness, treating others with contempt? And then look how he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like them. And he also prays, God, look how good I am. Reward me. So that's one part of the story. That's the Pharisee's prayer. Let's look at the 
tax collector's prayer. And we have to understand something in this time, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They betrayed the Jewish people and were working for the Romans who were occupying the promised land. They couldn't have been more despised. So Jesus knows what he's doing because he's gonna make the Pharisee the villain who was the good guy and he's gonna make the villain the good guy who was the tax collector. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast a sign of lament saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look at this appeal. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He puts God up here, mercy in the middle, and himself in the place of humility. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So let's turn this toward our hearts, this story, these stories that are meant to reveal to us our hearts, our sin, and bring about humility. Let's consider our hearts. Tim Keller says this of Luke 18. He says, if the gospel is true, it is not the good people who are in and the bad who are out or the open-minded and tolerant who are in, and the bigoted who are out. Rather, it is the humble who are in and the proud who are out. This is not the way we think. We don't think in terms of humble, proud, humble, those who would receive Christ by faith, proud, those who despise God's grace and look down on others, treat them with contempt because they see themselves as righteous. We think in a different way. We think in the good, bad binary, Good, bad binary, just meaning that on one side of the spectrum is good people, good actions, good ways of thinking, good behaviors. And on the other side is bad. Bad people, bad ways of thinking, bad behaviors. We think in a good, bad binary. We classify people based on that. We classify actions and belief systems based on that. And if you don't believe me, just look at this picture of someone driving in the Minnesota winter. You know, at least I do, when I see someone that's only scraped just a little bit of the windshield and they're driving, I'm like, get off the road. I scraped my whole car. We do, even in Minnesota winter, we do good, bad binary looking down at others. Like for me, I shovel and my neighbors that don't shovel, what if someone slips? You know, I look down on it, right? Uh, but the be- maybe the best one is when you're driving in the slow lane in winter, on winter roads and someone speeds past you. Ugh, how could they cruise past me? Even in Minnesota winter, we have good, bad binary. Those are maybe more uh, light examples, but maybe we have more serious examples. We look at people maybe democratic or progressive way of thinking or Republican conservative way of thinking. And we say, oh, you hold those beliefs. That's how you think. That's how you're going to act based on that thinking. I'm better than you. Or maybe we pride ourselves on our tolerance, our open-mindedness. And we say, oh, the bigots, they're the problem. I'm on the right side of history. I know what's right. That's also the weirdest picture of bigot that I could find. It was just like, I don't know why. It's like cartoon font. Or maybe we look at other, well, they're so, they're so progressive. They're so tolerant. What's their problem? Don't they understand truth? But what if we look at these lists or this idea of good, bad binary, and it reveals to us the words from Luke 18, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I'm righteous because I think this way. 
treated others with contempt, they're unrighteous because they think that way. God, I thank you that I'm not like. We do it better. We're smarter. We have a better understanding. Look how good we are. And look at that binary. I put that there, but it creates a wall. Judgmentalism always creates a wall. And you can't, you can't fully love someone you think you're better than. Nor will you move toward them to win them over in love. It's okay to disagree. Don't hear me say that. It's important to have disagreements on important things. But to look down on, to treat with contempt, I think Romans 2, 1 through 4 is saying, beware. And so what the gospel does, this is a picture now of that, of that tax collector who won't approach, who's humble, and the proud Pharisee. The gospel replaces our good, bad binary with the idea of humble, proud. And often in the story reveals us to be on the proud side. I think that's why Paul does this bait and switch. He wants us to see you are the one. You practice the same things. The story reminds us. And here's how I know. We read that story in Luke 18 and we say, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. I'm humble. We even get that one. We start looking down on the Pharisee and saying we're not like him. And again, the story indicts us all as we saw from Romans 1, 28 through 31. This list, I guarantee there's something on this list of sins that you've done. And I go back to, there's malices on there to go back to the example of the speeding driver. When someone speeds by you on a winter road, secretly in your heart or maybe out of, out of your heart, in your words, you want, you want to catch up to them further down the road and they're in the ditch. Ha, you got what you deserved. That's malice. So these, this list indicts us all. And that's why Paul put it in here right before Romans 2 to say, you can't judge because you are the one. It's not that we're good and others are bad. We are the one. We've all turned sour. We're all sinners. If we're all sinners, that means we can't be the judge. So what's the hope for us then if we have these judgmental hearts? How can we evoke compassion toward those we disagree with, those we might consider enemies in the wrong? How do we flee this judgmental pride? The answer is God's kindness. We don't often get into the Greek here uh, at Hope, uh, but I, this, was, this one was helpful. The, the word is krestos for God's kindness. And it's an adjective that means to furnish what is suitable or useful. In the spiritual sense, it's, it's something that's usefully kind. So God defines what is kind and, and he gives something eternally useful. We actually have, this was a quote, we have no adjective in English that conveys this blend of being kind and good at the same time. There's something about God's kindness that includes a provision of something useful. Furnishing what is useful, God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. So what is the thing that is useful? Meant to lead us to repentance, it is his son. God furnishes or puts forward his son for all of us who practice judgmental pride, all of us who have sinned and need a savior. It says in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness is his giving of his son for us. This is a gift he gives to the undeserving. If the gospel is anything, it is enemy love to the undeserving, a kindness that makes dead people alive and humbles prideful people like us. Again, 2 Corinthians describes it this way in chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's on this side of the cross. Now that this has happened, we regard no one according to the flesh. Or this could say we regard no one according to just good or bad. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's no more good, bad binary, but rather an old, new, or a a proud, humble, those who despise God's grace, with their pride or those who receive it in humility. The Pharisee, the tax collector, that's the binary. Those who say, I don't need you. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need your word. I'll figure this out. And those who say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the binary. Continuing on, he says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And how does he do it? not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them, the Lord has put away your sin through the blood of Christ. It is the kindness of God to us now that has made us reconcilers. Instead of judgmental people who push others away and create walls, we're reconcilers because we've been reconciled to God. This upends the good-bad binary and it actually upends what we even argue about. Look what he says. Here's what I want for you. I don't want you to think like me I don't want you to agree with my politics. I want you to be reconciled to God through Christ. Become new in him and he will change you. And this evokes in us a compassion we never could have tapped into within our own resources. A way of thinking about others that doesn't look down on them, but sees them with a different level of humility and compassion. Because God in his kindness provides for us And here's what he provides. Again, in Toy Story 3, what happens? The little aliens rescue them with the claw. The claw, right? They pluck them out of their dire situation. They're rescued. And now here's where Christianity is unique. Only Christianity says your righteousness, what makes you good, what makes you okay, what justifies you, 
Your righteousness, and that's why I use these guys, is an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of you, not from within you, and it is declared over you. This alien righteousness is what Paul says, is the righteousness of God for all who believe. When you put your faith in Christ, God looks at you as just. That is very different from having to have the right beliefs, the right actions, and the right thoughts to be a good person. That you actually can still be pretty messed up, and yet God will say you are justified. And when that righteousness comes from outside of us and not from within, it takes the venom out of our stinger toward other people. Because I don't pride myself on how much smarter and better I am than other people. I pride myself on the fact that God died for me. And he died for them too. That's an alien righteousness that humbles us. We stop looking to ourselves to to create our own standards of goodness. And we look to him and it is this kindness that leads us to repentance. The definition of repentance here is just spiritual response to freshly encountering God's rescue in Jesus and then turning to practically pursue life change and Holy Spirit power. Now, a few things on this. Spiritual response, we're responding. Repentance is always a response to God's kindness to us. It's seeing him for who he is as a rescuer of those trapped in sin. It does involve a turning and practical pursuit of life change, but the way we do that is also in God's power. We're not looking to greater resources from within. We're actually looking to without. King David, when he realizes his sin, writes Psalm 51. And just a couple verses here, we see a lot about the posture of repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That sounds very similar to our tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The spiritual posture of repentance is an appeal to God for him to do a work in us, not an appeal to our own inner resources. And it's a response to seeing that God in his mercy has put our sin away. God wins us with his kindness. Now that doesn't mean we can't discern, but our posture practically is also changed. The way that we judge, the way that we discern is changed. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, judge not lest that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we still do practice discernment. This is not a free pass. Fleeing judgmentalism and pride is not a free pass to just dismiss any wrongdoing. But it does change practically the posture we approach others with. Look at this. We self-examine first. We drop the pride act and we say, no, I, I know I'm a sinner. Now let me get that spec. We do this in humility, with compassion. I actually think this is a loving action. Because once you can see that speck, specks in the eye hurt. They don't feel good. You actually, I think it's a loving action to take that out. But the posture has to be kindness, not judgmentalism. For those, maybe right now, someone's coming to mind. This is the person I disagree with. 
I disagree with them on their beliefs. I disagree with them on these actions and this part of their character. Have you self-examined first? Do we come with repentance? Because even in our passage, we read and we say, God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. But we must also turn. And we're fleeing our judgmentalism. So for all the prideful judges, we've got to see the way those that when we do this, when we pridefully judge others, we despise God's grace. We say, how could you love them? So we've got to see a different kind of despising. And this comes from Jesus. He's not going to despise other people. He's going to despise something else. He's not going to despise God's grace, but something else. So it says in Hebrews 12, it describes the cross this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And now here's what we get to see. Who for the joy that was set before him, what's that joy? Winning his enemies to himself. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So for all of us who are prideful and despise God's grace, for all of us who are covered in shame by our sin, we have a Savior who goes to the cross in our place, despising the shame of it, but taking it on for us to bring us near. That's the kindness of God on full display on the cross. We've got to talk about this. Because how can can King David, with all he's done, how can the tax collector, with all his sin, how can we be justified? By appealing to God's mercy, by laying hold of his kindness for us, and we do it at the cross, when we put our faith in Christ. On the cross, Jesus, the one who didn't deserve to die, does die for all of us who do. Jesus absorbs the judgment of God, drinks that cup to the dregs so that God can have mercy on anyone who believes in him. The gospel is that simple. That's all he asks. God in his kindness provides the best and most useful sacrifice, which is his son. He shows enemy love to win us. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. When we're gazing upon the cross and what Christ has done for us, it is really hard to look over at our neighbor and say, man, what a fool. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so this is where Christianity has unique resources only because we have this alien righteousness, this kindness of God shown to us. Can we actually now show and tap into more compassion for others than we ever dreamed possible? We lay down our self-righteousness and we start to show compassion. Instead of creating walls, we move toward even those we disagree with because we've experienced the enemy love of God. Only when we see God's kindness at the cross do we lose the venom that we have toward others and we tap into unmeasured resources for compassion that we never thought possible. So, In closing, God be merciful to us, sinners. And that's an answered prayer. The cross tells us that he answered that prayer because the cross is where God's kindness is on full display. So as we close, so I ask two questions. One, uh, today, do you despise or embrace the kindness of God? You say, yeah, I know, I don't think I'm there. 
I don't think I need this savior. I think I want to keep thinking I'm better than other people. Or do you embrace and say, wow, I know I'm not better than anyone. I can't believe he's had mercy on me. And secondly, let's allow, let's encounter that gospel. Let's look at that cross and allow God's grace to evoke a compassion and an enemy love within us this week. And as we go forward, God loves his enemies. He loves us. He wins us with his kindness. And that kindness is his giving of his son. We're going to move now to a time of communion. We've got the juice and the wafer here that represent this kindness. The sacrifice, the useful sacrifice of his son, Jesus. The the wafer which represents Christ's body broken for us on the cross. The juice which represents Christ's blood shed for us so that God and kindness could win enemies back to himself and change our hearts forever. As the song said, he makes beautiful things. He makes us into people that instead of judging, love others, even our our enemies, as it were. So as we take these elements, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All we ask is that you have said, yes, no, I embrace this cross. I embrace the kindness of God. I put my faith in Christ. If that's you today, I'd love to have you join and take these elements with us. We're gonna sing a couple more songs and just reflect, worship this God who shows kindness to those who even would reject him. So I'm going to pray and the band will come up and we'll close in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reality that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, that you win over your enemies with your own costly love, that you in your costly love pay the penalty for our sin through the blood of your son, Jesus, and you give us your spirit to change the way that we think about ourselves and others. You humble us and you instill in us a compassion, a mercy that reflects who you are. So God, as we pray, as we go forward this week, may mercy flow through us in ways we've never experienced because it is your power at work in us. We pray and we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.